raise your hand. And Stuart has two or three in his hand. He'll bring them right to your seat. You can follow along with us. If you would, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 23. It's been a couple weeks since we've been here, but uh, um, awesome to get back into it. Almost done. A few more weeks and we'll be done. And Acts, chapter 23, this evening. Let's uh, have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight, Lord, and this opportunity to just to worship you, Lord, uh, sing praises to your name. You are a good, good Father, Lord, that you've called us to be here. You've called us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, give us not only understanding but application in our lives as we look to you, Lord, this evening. Thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been quite a while since we are here, and so let's get caught up a little bit about what's been happening. Paul arrived in Caesarea, a beautiful Mediterranean beach town, and, and stayed there with Philip the Evangelist. While he was there, this man named Agabus did this kind of weird thing. You know, he, he took Paul's belt off and bound him with it and gave Paul this warning saying, if you go to Jerusalem, this would happen to you. Now, Paul responded, so what? Right, so be it. You know, basically, give me a break. What are you trying to do? Break my heart. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to die for my Lord. Now, we'll see that what happened, what Agabus said would happen actually did happen. But Paul goes to Jerusalem anyway, about a 60-mile journey from Caesarea. Once he arrives in Jerusalem, he's walking out of the temple where a crowd had gathered because they had mistakenly thought that Paul had brought a Gentile into the temple. And so they attack Paul. They beat him. Well, the Roman chief captain here's the commotion going on. And he comes to stop the attack. And, and, and so he grabs Paul and, and he's taking Paul away because he's going, okay, this guy's is in charge of this thing. I mean, he's the guy that's riled everybody up. So, so I've got to bring him in and see what's going on. Paul says, hold on a minute. Can I speak to these guys, these Jews that, that just attacked and that just beat me up? So the captain gives him permission. And Paul gives his testimony. And we looked at that last time and how powerful it is you have a, a testimony and to share your testimony with people. Paul shared his testimony. Things seem to be going really good until Paul mentioned that dreaded word to the Jew. Gentiles. God called me to the Gentiles. Oh, man. And the crowd went wild again. Not in a good way, in a bad way. And the chief Roman captain again had to rescue Paul once more time. Then just when the Roman guard was about to beat Paul up to find out who he is and why everyone was so mad at him, Paul said to the guard, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen? Uh, Roman citizen? The guard said, uh, uh, you know, and the guard, who knowing it was against the law to beat a Roman citizen without a, a proper trial, said, you know, well, uh, uh, I'm a Roman citizen, uh, and I paid well for, for a large price of my citizenship. And Paul says, yeah, well, uh, I was born into it. Oh, no. Now there's a problem here. Uh, because... The Roman guard knew they were in trouble. It's unlawful for the Roman guard to bind a Roman citizen without a proper legal procedure. And if they would have scourged Paul like they were about ready to do, well, then that officer in charge, he would be you know, put to death because Paul was a Roman citizenship. He would get that same scourging. So they said, well, well uh, okay, uh, now what do we do? <laughs> Let's bring this in before the council in the morning and see what's up with this guy to see why they're trying to kill him. That's where we pick it up tonight. So we have Paul, 
We have the Jewish high priest and some of the, his buddies, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We also have the Roman council, a pretty good-sized group all here. Now we get to verse 1 of chapter 23 and we read, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Well, think about this. Paul had been beaten pretty badly by the angry mob. His face probably was sore, probably was bruised. The blow must have really shocked Paul and must have hurt terribly. And also, this high priest, his words here, I mean, it's commanded, it's grossly unjust, and revealed that he was not interested in justice at all. He was only interested in getting Paul condemned. So Paul, he's had enough. And I think you can see in these words that he's pretty angry. I think that sometimes we look at the Apostle Paul and think, well, he's like this super Christian, you know. And we forget that he had the same type of struggles that you and I go through that we struggle with today. Perhaps that's why he would write to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Because he knows what anger can do. It's a story I read of a couple that had been married for a long time. They were asked their secret. They said, okay, it's true that we fight, but to be honest, we have never gone to bed mad. Of course, there was one year we were up for three months. It seems that we always all have that, that breaking point and our lives. Now, with some people, they seem to, to never get angry. The, the voice never changes. They're always calm. And others, just the exact opposite. You know, like a live wire. Any little thing sends them through the roof. Oh, yeah! Well, you know, and there's a, kind of extremes of that. Another story I found of some men on a golf course who were watching a fellow golfer having some difficulty on this particular course. And the frustration became very clear around the 13th hole as this poor guy placed shot after shot into the, into the pond. Finally, in complete exasperation, he picked up his golf bag, spun it around like a discus thrower, and heaved the whole thing into the middle of the lake and stormed off the course, apparently forever. Moments later, however, he returned. As he waded into the pond, the friends watched, smiled as they recognized his embarrassment. He had come to his senses. He fished out his dripping bag, unzipped a pocket on the side, took out his car keys, and then flugged the whole bag once again into the lake. (laughs) Then he went home. Here's Paul, and he's faced, struck right in the face, and then he calls Ananias this whitewashed wall. That doesn't sound like such a bad word. I mean, if you're going to call someone a name, certainly I can think of a lot worse. It sounds like he's saying, well, you whitewashed picket fence you. <laughs> okay, yeah, what's up with that? But actually, it had a worse meaning. See, if you were in Israel at that time for Passover and you were on your way to the temple, if you accidentally stepped on a grave or leaned up against a sepulcher, you would become ceremonial unclean because there were dead bones inside of that. So to prevent people from, from having to go through the whole ceremonial process of getting clean all over again, they would paint these graves and sepulchers white so they noted to stay away from them. So when Paul says to Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you do command me to be struck contrary to the law. He was saying, how dare you? You dead man. You're nothing more than a bag of dead man's bones. And he's angry. And rightly so, because what they were doing to him was illegal. See, according to Deuteronomy 25, it was absolutely forbidden for a man to be hit like that without due process. If he was to be struck, 
It was not to be in the face. It was going to be on the back. And Paul knew the law. He was a scholar. He knew they were breaking the law. And yet, here they're trying to judge him by saying, well, you broke the law by bringing these Gentiles into to the temple, even though he never did that. And then they slug him in the face. So Paul's words were justified. And even though he was completely right in his accusations, I think, and I look at this, I think Paul probably should not have responded in the way that he did. And you may say, well, didn't Jesus call them a whitewashed tomb also? Yeah, Matthew twenty two twenty seven, but But it wasn't a response in anger or, or a response because they, they struck him. In fact, as, as an excellent example that Paul is, we should be looking to Jesus for our, our example and behavior of the person of Jesus Christ. He set the higher standard for us. Yes, like Paul, Jesus was struck in the mouth in John 18, but Jesus didn't get mad. He didn't call names. He didn't raise his voice. He simply humbled himself and he humbly raised a question. He said in John 18, 23, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Now, Paul could have done the same thing. Paul could have said, listen, why do you sit and judge me according to the law? But then you command me to be struck, which is contrary to the law. <laughs> but Paul didn't do that, did he? God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And someone has said, speak when you're angry and you'll deliver the best speech you'll ever regret. Proverbs twenty one twenty three says, Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Well, verse 4 we read, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Now, this high priest that Paul called a whitewashed wall was a man by the name of Ananias. He was actually the worst of the worst as far as high priest goes in the history of Israel. By today's standards, he would be considered a multimillionaire just because he, he ripped people off there in the, in the temple. They would bring their sacrifices into the temple and he would say, oh, that's, you know what, this is not a good sacrifice. I mean, it's blemished. There's a problem with that. But if we got a deal for you for twenty nine ninety five, we're going to sell you this sacrifice for you to take in. And so he made his money that way. Huge amounts of money. And he's ripping people off. And, and uh, it's no wonder that after serving 12 years as high priest, he was assassinated by his own countrymen. So from yours and my perspective, I think you would say this guy deserves to be smacked back is what he deserved. You know, I, I don't care his title. But, but look at the way Paul answers. Look at verse 5. Paul says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Boy, that's kind of a, a hard verse to deal with, isn't it? I mean, when you think about our coming election and you think about the people that are ruling in, in, in the United States, and I'm going, oh, man, well, I read this this afternoon, I'm thinking... This is kind of convicting. It's real easy to speak evil of a ruler of a people. Now, there are those that say, well, well, Paul is, is being sarcastic. I don't think he was being sarcastic. I believe that Paul knew that his reaction was wrong. And, and so he says here, brothers, I didn't know he was the high priest. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Paul wouldn't recognize him as the high priest. Uh, number one, uh, uh, the, the office at that time was, was vacant and Ananias he was a dethroned high priest, and he was the acting high priest at that time. And so Paul possibly didn't know he was the high priest at the time, especially if this was an informal meeting and he wasn't in his, his priestly robes and all that. The other reason that could be quite possible is that Paul's eyesight may not have been very good at this time. And he just didn't recognize the high priest. You know, we have a hint of that in Galatians 4.15 where Paul says, for I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So it's possible that Paul this time was having this, this problem with his eyes, couldn't see very clearly, didn't know who was who in that situation. But once Paul understood, 
Hey, this was the high priest. He did the right thing. And even though the person holding the office as the high priest was dishonorable, Paul showed respect uh, to him. Showed true courage by his quickness to apologize. You know, Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, Paul could have, he could have argued back and forth. He just, no, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know he, he was, you know, the, the, was the high priest. Yeah. I remember years ago watching Happy Days. You know, you guys know that, the 50s show, where, where Fonzie needed to apologize for something that he did, and he just couldn't get the words out. <laughs> I was, he wanted to say wrong, but man, all he could get was the W-R. I was, he couldn't get the words out. And I think many of us can be in that same situation at times, you know. Someone does something to us and we, we justify our anger. We rationalize it. We, we even may say we're sorry, but then we add a but. So, I'm sorry, but. That's not really an apology. See, Paul knew he was wrong and he said so. But he also knew that he wasn't getting anywhere with this crowd. And so he takes the next step. Look at verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren! I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. (laughs) I love, Paul knows what's going on here. He was a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, they didn't, you know, (coughs) excuse me. They did not. So then when Paul said the word resurrection, there was immediately a division. And, and what Paul did is he turned this, this trial into a theological argument between the fundamentals and the liberals. Look at verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees partly arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him, let us not fight against God. <laughs> I love this. You know, Paul was a Pharisee. The guys, the Pharisees, were, they were on his side, you know. And, and, and suddenly, because Paul says he believes in the resurrection, we like this guy. You know, he's all right with us. Then the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because, you knew I was going to say that, because, again, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were ready to take Paul down. And so Paul knew all of this. And, and he knew the trial was heading nowhere except to his death. And, 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 you know, when you first start off and get hit in the face right in the beginning, you know this isn't going to go very far. And so there was this division going on then. Uh, and, and really, you know, that's where the division is today, is it not? You know, it's in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said he would die, he would rise again on the third day, and he would come back for those that, 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 that believe in him. And, and today, you know, the resurrection, all oh, they, they come against the resurrection. That's where the dividing factor is today. But Paul's whole purpose for coming to Jerusalem was to testify of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he does. And they start fighting with one another. So much so, that another riot begins to break out. Look at verse 10. Now when there was a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, can you imagine? One got one arm and one has the other arm. No, he's with us. No, he's not. He says, and the soldiers, uh, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Here was the problem. Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles, but he had such a love 
for, for the Jews. I mean, he even said he would give up his own life if his countrymen could be saved. And he said, you know, he thought, surely if I go to Jerusalem, my fellow Jews, they will listen to me. So even though I'm going to get bound with his belt and, and get there, they're going to listen to me. I know they are. And finally, his big opportunity comes. Uh, perhaps forced by Paul, but nonetheless, this was his big moment. And, and when he came out of the temple, you know, uh, he faces angry crowd. He gets beat up, pulled into protective custody by the Romans, gets slapped in the face, almost pulled apart again. You know, and it's like he had his big chance. But now he's back in the prison in the barracks all over again. Not the kind of reception I think that Paul was hoping for. Again, I, I'm thinking, he, he thought, man, if I just get to Jerusalem, these Jews will surely listen to me. I just know it. Kind of reminds me of the kid on the high school, you know, football team. You know, maybe he's a halfback and, and he just knows that he could run through that line and outrun the backfield and, and he could score if, if he just had the, the chance and he's, oh, let me carry the ball, give me the chance. And every time he goes to the huddle, you know, he's telling the quarterback, man, I want to carry it, I want to carry it, just give me a chance. So he finally gets the play, you know, you're number, he, he gets the chance. Quarterback receives the ball from the center, hands it off to you. He starts running through the line, and one of his big tackle grabs him, strips the ball. He fumbles. The other team recovers it and scores. The coach pulls him out of the game as he's sitting on the bench. His big moment, and he blew it. That, to me, is the picture I get where Paul is at right now. I think he's discouraged. He's dejected. He had this big moment. He was ready to share. He wanted to see this big revival. He wanted to see the Jews come to faith in Christ. And he's discouraged. So what does the Lord do? He shows up in a special way, a big way. Look at verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Wow. A special appearance by the Lord. And not only that, I mean, the Lord says, I'm not done with you. You know, Paul may be thinking, man, I blew it so badly. You're not finished with me, Lord. No. Why? Because we serve a God of second chances and third chances. And His mercies are new every morning. I love that we read there in verse 11 that the Lord stood by him. No one else was standing by him, but the Lord was there. Now, the same thing is true in our lives. You may be going through some kind of hard, difficult time and, and feeling like you're all alone. And facing some struggles, but know that the Lord is there. He's standing there with you. And he says, be of good cheer. That's what we read here. The Lord comes to Paul and says, be of good cheer. Or literally, Paul, be of good courage is what he's saying. Now, that's not the only time that, that Jesus had come to people and told them to be of good courage. I think of over in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. There was the uh, man who was a paraplegic and he was carried by his friends, remember, uh, through the rooftop and into the presence of Jesus. And when Jesus saw the man... He said this to him in, in Matthew 9, 2. Son, be a good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, it seems that the man, you know, he, he was brought there so that Jesus not would forgive him of his sin, but, but rather to be healed. But Jesus went on to say, well, you know, well, what do you think it's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. So, just so you know that, that I am the, 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 the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. He says, take up your bed and walk. But the point I want to make is that Jesus first comes to the man and says, be of good cheer. Hey, be of good courage. Your sins are forgiven you. And, and the Lord did something that just totally blew his mind. He was healed. I think of another example of that. With um, uh, the, Jesus said, be of good courage in the story of the woman who was struggling with the issue of blood. And she was attempting to reach Jesus through this large crowd. And, and a man named Jerry's had a daughter who was sick and on the brink of death. And he got to Jesus to come with them. And as they're making their way to Jerry's house, 
this woman sees Jesus and, and she's, she's wanting to, to just touch him. And she's thinking, if I could just touch the hem of his, his garment, I can be healed. Now, because she had this issue of blood, that means she was decreed unclean under the ceremonial law. So this woman, she had lost everything. Her money, she spent all her money trying to find a cure. Uh, she's been ostracized and isolated. She was living in loneliness. But if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And she says, so Jesus, as he's walking, she manages to get her hand through the, and touches him. And suddenly Jesus stops. Says, who touched me? Everyone was like, well, who didn't touch you? You know, everyone touched you. No, he says, I perceive that power has gone out from me. And then the crowds kind of part. And there is this woman kneeling there. And she probably thought, oh man, I'm in trouble now. He's going to embarrass me. He's going to humiliate me. And Jesus says to her, be of good courage. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Girl, I commend you of your faith and put it on display for everyone else to see. So in this case, his power gave her courage. I think in the same way, Paul was discouraged and Jesus comes to him in his discouragement and says to him, Paul, be of good courage. Because the Lord knew what he needed. He needed that encouragement, especially after the day that he had. Now, you know, there are those that, you know, they may try to cheer you up. You know, hey man, hang in there, be of good courage, you know. You know, but they really are, they don't go about it the, the right way, you know. I just need to smile, put on a happy face, gray skies are going to clear up, you know, spread a little sunshine, come on, be happy. Wait a minute. It's all good and fine, but you know what I'm going through. See, this is the Lord speaking to Paul. Knew what he was going through and knew what he needed to hear. Paul, be of good courage. And courage, I think it's in short supply these days. Someone has said courage is the fear that has said its prayers. It's fear that has said its prayers. It means to be determined, to make oneself alert, to strengthen oneself. The English Dictionary describes it as the capacity to meet danger or difficulty with firmness and bravery. So the Lord's saying to Paul, Paul, meet danger and difficulty with firmness and bravery. See, the word of the Lord tells us the same thing. Meet difficulties with firmness and bravery. Why? Because we trust in the living God. And He'll accomplish the work that He has begun in you. Which is encouraging because when God tells us, you know, to do something, it means He's given us the ability to do it. I think we've all been called to go out and share the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I know sometimes it can be hard. Because we're afraid. We think, oh, no, I don't know. What are they going to say? What, what are they going to do? And I think we're all stricken with this acute case of chickenitis. You know? You have a strong desire to go to Chick-fil-A. No, that's not what it is. Although that sounds really good right about now. <laughs> no, it's Courage. You know, we lack that courage and we get the kind of chicken and we become fearful and afraid, afraid what people may say, how they may reject you. But you see, it's the Lord that gives us that courage. If he told us to go in all the world and preach the gospel, then he's going to give us the ability just to do that. In fact, he said that in Acts 1.8. He says, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses unto me. And we need that power to have the courage to do what God has called us to do. And it's there for each one of us if we just ask. So, the Lord encourages Paul by saying, be of good cheer, or be of good courage. And not only that, the Lord commends Paul for all he's done. Uh, look at, again, verse 11. He says, you know, good job, Paul. You have testified for me in Jerusalem. You've done it. You, you've, you've spoken out for me in Jerusalem. Great. You know, Hebrews 6.10 tells us, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. A simple acknowledgement that, that Jesus is saying, Paul, I see what you're doing. Good job. Hang in there. 
You know, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 to comfort each other and edify one another. In other words, you know, kind of the same thing. You know, to, 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 to encourage one another. To say, man, I appreciate your friendship. Man, you're doing a great job. Man, I appreciate your faithfulness. So Paul not only encouraged Paul, not only, I mean, the Lord not only encouraged Paul and commended Paul, but he also gave him a purpose and a hope. And he says to them in verse 11, just as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I love that. Paul, cheer up. You're not going to stay in prison. They're not going to kill you right now. Uh, man, you're, you're going to go to Rome. Wow. I, I mean, you know, I love this. You know, Paul, you've done great. I've got so much more in store for you. I think we can look at the story and we go, man, you might, you might be afraid of, of, of what's going to happen in the future. It might be discouraged, maybe because you felt like you, you failed. But Jesus knows exactly where you're at this very moment. He knows what you're experiencing. And he says, be courageous because he's with you and, and there's a brighter tomorrow for you. It's not over. I love Jeremiah 29:11. You know, it was our VBS verse, this, this uh, last VBS. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And these were the words that the Lord was given to Paul. He was giving him a future. He was giving him a hope. He was encouraging him. Now, this also meant that nothing was going to get in the way of Paul going to Rome because the Lord promised that Paul would go to Rome. Now, uh, you know, so all he had to do was wait and see how the Lord was going to do that, which he promised. But let me say this. When the Lord gives us a promise, you know, we have to do our part, and he's going to do his part. I mean, Paul could have said, hey, I'm going to Rome. I'm going to jump off buildings. I'm invincible. Nothing's going to happen to me, you know, right now. And he could have tested the Lord, but, but he didn't do that. Paul could have just sat back and said, you know, I'm not doing nothing. You know, I'm just going to sit there because the Lord's going to say I'm going to Rome. No. He continued on with sharing and, and preaching the word and trusting the Lord. Because here's the thing, you can get in the way of the Lord promises. And that's my point. If Paul did not get in the way of the will of God, nor did he test the Lord. He simply took the word of the Lord. The purpose the Lord laid out in front of him believed uh, that the Lord was going to fulfill that promise. Uh now, that doesn't mean along the way the enemy doesn't want to come in and attack us and, and you know, cause problems in our lives. And, and as we've been seeing through the book of Acts, whenever there's a promise, whenever there's a move of God about to happen, the enemy is right there. That's what we see next. Look at verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. <laughs> Could you imagine having someone say that to you? Uh, we're not going to eat or drink until like, we kill, you know, Tom. You know, well, you're going to starve. I mean, you, you know, and that's what they could have said for Paul here. Now, here's the thing about this. Paul had no clue this was going on. You know, he's in the prison. You know, probably the safest place for him to be at this point that no one could touch him there. I think sometimes we end up in certain situations and we say, well, how come God allowed this to happen to me? How come I'm here until we go a few years past and we look back in 2020 vision and go, oh man, I see why God had me in that place. He was protecting me. He was keeping me from this or keeping me from that. Paul was being kept in a safe place there in that prison. But what's interesting is that at this point, Paul had no idea of their plot to kill him. Now, God was still working behind the scenes and, and God would get Paul to Rome, but Paul didn't have a clue. And all that to say is that I'm glad I don't always know what's going on around me. 
that is the things that are happening in, in the supernatural realm as well as the, the natural realm. You know, maybe people are out to get me or, or they're not, or the supernatural things that are going on. Just, I'm glad I, do, I don't know some of that. You know, people that want to destroy you. Because we know this, the Lord is with us wherever we are. We don't need to be afraid. God will keep us. So I like Isaiah 26.3. You will keep him in perfect peace his mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So these, these Jews band together. They say we're not going to eat anything until we have killed Paul, which would be a vow they couldn't keep. They go on in the plan. Look at verse 15. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that it be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So this is their plan to kill him. But verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now this is the only reference that we have in Scripture to Paul's relatives, his sister's son. So Paul's nephew, he catches one of the plan and he comes running into Paul and lets him know what's going down. Now Paul could have said, big deal, God said I was going to Rome, so who cares? But he doesn't. See, Paul did his part and God would do his part. Paul's part was to be obedient to the Lord, believe the promise that the Lord gave him, and do whatever he could to see that promise realized. See, again, we have our part to do, and God has his part. The Lord gave, God, uh, Lord gave Paul a promise. Paul reacted according to the promise of God. So, see, this attack is not of the Lord. It's of the enemy. So I will use the wisdom that God has given me to fulfill God's plan for my life. And, and we must recognize that in our own lives, what the attacks, what they are. And then use the wisdom that God gives us to fight against these attacks of the enemy. Using God's word. And that's what Paul does in our text here. Now think of Nehemiah. You know, his job was rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. And he knew what God had called him to do. And the work that they were doing. Even when Sambalot and then Tobiah was trying to stop the work. And at one point they had their spears in one hand and their shovels at the same time. Man, ready to defend and do the work. And, and that's what Paul was here doing. That's what we're called to do. See, my point is this, when the Lord gives us something to do, do with all your hearts, expect attacks, but be prepared against them and stay true to the promise that God has given to you. And that's what Paul did. So in verse 17, after Paul heard of this plan for his murder, Paul reacts using the wisdom God gives him. Verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And, they, and now they are ready waiting for the promise from you. Now remember, the Romans were responsible for Paul's life, knowing that Paul was a Roman citizen. If anything happened to him, it would be upon their necks. So it was in their best interest to make sure that Paul was protected. So verse 22. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea on the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. <laughs> wow. I mean, Paul, the Lord told Paul he would go to Rome, and Rome he would go. And he starts his trip with the escort of 470 men of the best military the, the Roman army had to offer. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. 
And the first stop is this Roman city, Roman city of Caesarea, where the Roman governors would like to hang out. Paul is sent to Felix, the governor. Now, we'll read more about Felix next time together, but suffice it to say, he was not a good guy. He received his position because of his brother Pallas, who was a friend of Caesar Nero. Uh, but he, he sent to, to, Paul is sent to Felix along with this letter. Look at verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And I wanted to know the reason they accused him. I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of the law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or change. It's funny how Claudius Lysias conveniently forgot to mention that they had Paul bound and they were ready to beat him. They don't even bring that up. Verse 30, he goes on. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. <laughs> He's out of my hands. So the letter is written and it's on the way to put with Paul to Caesarea. Verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. So, as we pointed out earlier, from Jerusalem to Caesarea was about 60 miles. Uh, the first 40 miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea was uh, through the mountain country where the Jews lived, and they could have easily ambushed Paul there. And so they had this whole army going with them for this part of the trip. When they made it past the mountain country, all that was left of it was about 20 miles of wide open space, which made all those men not necessary to have to get Paul where he was going. So the 400 soldiers and swordsmen go back with the 70 horsemen soldiers going on with Paul. Verse 20, 33, when they came to Caesarea... And had delivered the letter to the governor. They also presented Paul to him. So, Paul now is presented to Felix the governor. Felix, he was a very cruel man. He had three wives in quick succession. We don't know the name of his first wife. His second wife was the granddaughter of Cleopatra and Anthony, which he divorced and married finally Drusilla, who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Uh, you know, very you know, wicked family tree here. At this time, Felix had been reigning as a governor over the province for five years, very corrupt reign. He would reign for two more years before being deposed and banished from the Roman government because of his corruption. But this is who Paul is standing before right now. Paul's ready to give his defense. Well, Felix reads the letter, look at verse 34, and when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that it was from uh, Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come, and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So we finish up here, verse 34. You know, Herod's Praetorium was, was, was not a bad place to stay. In fact, uh, Herod had built a, a palace in Caesarea, so Paul's stay there was not too bad. It's a beautiful Mediterranean port. In fact, I, I Google mapped it this afternoon to see what it looked like, and, and it's, it's beautiful. I'd, I'd love to go visit there if we ever went to Israel. Uh, again, so it, so it was, wasn't a bad place for Paul to, to wait there, to be used by the Lord. Paul's, God's basically saying, okay, I'm taking you out of this crowd. You've been beat up. You know, I'm going to send you with protection to Caesarea. Now you're just going to rest there for a little bit. Then I'm going to continue to use you. And, and I like that. And I don't think Paul was concerned about the upcoming trial because God had promised him that he would go to Rome. God had great things in store for Paul. And, and, and as we close, I do believe that, that God has great things in store for us. We just got to believe the promises that he's given to us. We have to trust in him. He that has begun a good work in us, he's faithful to complete it. He has promised it and he'll bring it to pass. Let's pray. 
Father, thanks, thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, we, we look at the travels of Paul, Lord, and, and I know at times we, we can't relate to this just because of the, the difficulties and the things that he has gone through. Lord, but we can relate to some of the difficulties and the problems that we face day to day, Lord, even rejection from, from those we're sharing with, Lord. We're, we're trying to reach people with, with the gospel and, and the hatred, Lord, that comes against us. Lord, help us not to respond in anger. Lord, help us to re- respond kindly, Lord, as you would respond, Lord. Lord, help us to be a church that, that uh, Lord, is just trust in you, Lord, and that you will bring it to pass, Lord. You promise to do great things, Lord, in our lives and in this church. And we just look to you, Lord, to be the strength and the source of all that we do. Lord, help us to, to live, Lord, each day more and more to bring glory to your name and honor to you. For you deserve all of our praise and all of our, 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 our love, Lord. We thank you for what you've done in Jesus' name.